0: Hello, and welcome to the Charter Cities Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, the founder and executive director of the Charter Cities Institute. On the Charter Cities Podcast, we illuminate the various aspects of building a charter city, from governance to urban planning, politics to finance. We hope listeners to the Charter Cities Podcast will come away with a deep understanding of charter cities, as well as the steps necessary to build them. You can subscribe and learn more about charter cities at CharterCitiesInstitute.org. Follow us on social media, CCI.City on Twitter and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. Thank you for listening. Today on the podcast, we have Chris Blatman. Chris
1: is a professor at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. He's an economist and political scientist who is one of the world's foremost experts on violence, conflict, and war. He also studies issues related to global poverty and he's conducted research in both sub-Saharan Africa and in Latin America. In addition to his academic research, Chris is a prolific and popular blogger in the world of international development, and he's just written a great new book on crime and conflict called Why We Fight, The Roots of War and the Paths to Peace. We talk about all this today and more. Enjoy the show. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Okay, so you have a new book out, Why We Fight About the Causes of War and the Path to Peace. And your premise is basically that wars shouldn't happen and most of the time they don't. And it turns out war and violence, to a surprising degree, have a lot to do with a pie and how that pie is shared. So can we begin here by you going over the thesis of the book and your framework for listeners?
2: Right. So... This is an idea that goes back a long ways in political science and economics, and it's true of labor strikes, it's true of court battles, and it's true of war, which is that all of these things are really costly, that there's usually a better way to get what you want because you can negotiate or bargain without fighting, or you can fight, which is horrendously costly. And so most adversaries look at that option or that set of options and they say, we'd rather fight a deal. And we don't pay attention to that very much because it's really easy to get drawn to our attention gets sucked in by the events like are going on right now in Russia and Ukraine. And we don't write, and we don't talk about all of the wars that didn't happen. Good example is just two weeks into Russia's invasion of Ukraine, India launched a cruise missile at Pakistan by accident, and suit. There was an article about that, but it kind of got buried. You had to scroll through 18 pages of Ukraine news on your phone before you could get to it. And so all of these quiet moments of compromise tend to slip from our memories and our attention. And yet it's just that basic incentive is always present. And it's why most of the time we don't fight.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I guess since you brought up Ukraine and we have one of the world's experts in war and violence on, we got to ask about it. So you've written, you can sort of see how Ukraine may transform into a sort of new Kashmir situation. So can you talk about that a bit and how this war fits maybe into your five logics for war framework that you outline in the book?
2: Yeah. So To just back up a bit, obviously we do fight. Like I wrote a book called, it wasn't called Why We Don't Fight, that might have sold fewer books. It's certainly true. But of course, we really do care about why we do fight. And so the answer to why we do fight is pretty easy. Something overcame this powerful incentive for peace. The cost of war, which we can see right now, are just so dire and so horrific for everybody, both sides. Nobody wins. And those are so dire that it's like a gravitational pull towards peace. And so something equally powerful has to make you overlook or ignore those costs and yank you out of that orbit. And I talk about in the book how there's five logics that there's essentially, there's a million ways you can get yanked out of that orbit, but they all sort of fall into five categories based on the particular way in which we're incentivized to overlook the costs. And we can walk through those. But in the context of Ukraine, I mean, all wars end eventually. Almost all wars end in a settlement. That's sometimes an official settlement, but very often it's a kind of a stalemate. And I think of Kashmir as a stalemate, as basically the two sides deciding that it's, they're exhausted, they don't want to fight anymore. And so they don't officially agree to carve up their territory because that's difficult for lots of reasons, but they de facto settle. And that's kind of the set of events I imagine eventually taking place. Eventually Ukraine and Russia, the intense violence will stop, and probably Russia at that point will occupy a substantial chunk. Of the country and probably no one will recognize the legitimacy of that and therefore we're looking at a very long and hopefully far less violent stalemate over these regions
1: you're at the university of chicago so i wanted to ask to your colleague over there john mearsheimer has weighed in on this and there's been some commentary on what he said in his thoughts and stuff so has that commentary been fair unfair what are your what are your thoughts
2: mearsheimer has been first of all, he's been right about a lot of things over the years. I think he was one of the very early voices to sort of caution us about the strategic rivals used with Russia and China when, when America stopped paying attention to that for a long period of time and so forth. In this case, he has been very focused on the role of NATO in arousing Putin's ire and helping bring about the current crisis. I think that's partly true. Personally, I think this is really a fight between Russia and Ukraine and its Ukrainian political decisions and Ukrainian popular decisions and Russian political decisions that are primary to blame here. And I think NATO and its role is secondary. So I put it in my frame, you know, we can talk about the five, we can talk about the thing, but I would just, my general comment on John is just that where he and I differ is I just put a lot less emphasis, but I think what he's talking about is a genuine pressure that certainly has not helped.
1: Yeah. And, I got to ask on the Ukraine thing, were you annoyed that, I mean, this is maybe not the best way to phrase this question, but annoyed that this war happened after your final proofs were done and you weren't (laughs) able to include some sort of commentary in your book? Or were you glad that whole added pressure of adding a whole new section right at the very end as you're trying to get this thing done? You got to avoid that.
2: I actually tried to avoid talking about really, really contemporary conflicts in the book, partly because I, I want this book to be Lasting, and I didn't want it to be out of date the day it was written. And any prediction about Ukraine that people made before, or after any prediction I make now, will probably be wrong. And so, in that sense, I dodged a bullet. But in the other sense, you always want the book to be relevant. You finish writing a year before the book comes out, or nine months at least. And I always knew something would come up, and I knew something would come up in a part of the world that probably I would struggle to find on an unlabeled map. It would be fabulous from a book's point of view if. I don't know if the Medellin cartels attacked the United States right now, of course we don't want that to happen. (laughs) I certainly don't want that to happen. That would make me like the world expert. Or if there was another major civil war in West Africa, I'm happy to say these are all incredibly Pacific places right now. So anyways, it was bound to happen.
1: We can maybe quickly go over the five logics first and so people have a sense of what we're talking about when we mean these five logics for war, because that sort of is the infrastructure and the structure of the whole book. So there's, just to summarize, first is unchecked interests, second is intangible incentives, third is uncertainty, fourth is a commitment problem, and five is misperceptions. So why don't we maybe start, we can explain what these mean, maybe perhaps give an illustrative example or two. Why don't we begin with unchecked interests? What do we mean by this?
2: Yeah, and why don't we talk about Ukraine and Russia? Everyone's received crash course, it's very fresh in our minds, and everyone's asking, And you can kind of think about these five as they're five different logics and they're ways of sorting all the sorts of things you hear. So let me actually start with what's the big narrative right now? The big narrative right now is that Putin and his inner circle have a set of nationalistic ideological objectives that they're pursuing at any cost. And so fundamentally, that's a variety of what something I call an intangible incentive. The idea that, yes, war is incredibly costly, but there's something you can obtain through war and maybe only through war that is so valuable to you that it overwhelms the costs. You
1: call these indivisibles, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And there's so many, right? Like every time you pick up an article, there's another ideological objective or another ethereal thing that Putin wants. Maybe it's personal glory. to Be the next Catherine the Great. Some people say, oh, we think maybe he has thyroid cancer because there's all these cancer doctors, thyroid doctors that have been following around for so many years and this is on his bucket list. Like we just keep hearing this list of things that Putin maybe delusionally wants. And so all of these are a kind of intangible incentive. And I'm sure that's true to some degree. I think we tend to overstate those. The intangible, where a lot of people are ignoring, I think, is on the Ukrainian side. The much nobler intangible that Ukrainians are seeking is essentially liberty and self-determination. So Russia is extremely strong. They've grown stronger in the last 20 years. Ukraine has stagnated, it's poorer than it was 30 years ago. And it has no military allies, or certainly didn't at the outset. And Russia said, listen, we want more of the pie. And you're going to give it to us because we're much stronger and we're stronger than we were before. So time to renegotiate. And that was, in some sense, a, I mean, an evil but a reasonable thing to request in the sense of expecting that they would comply. And the Ukrainians said, no way. That compromise was simply repugnant. And so the idea that you would value your liberty over a compromise is, again, an intangible. And most people don't make that trade-off. Most trade off people, most of Russia's neighbors and the Russian people themselves. And most people throughout history, when confronted with an imperial power or a repressive autocrat have essentially not revolted. Sometimes they do, but mostly they don't. But sometimes these freedom fighters and revolutionaries and others like the Ukrainians say no way. So anyways, so I think intangible incentives are a big part of what's going on there. These ethereal things that both sides want. The other one you hear a lot is what Political scientists and what I call misperceptions, which is the idea that Putin is actually maybe a little rational, but certainly misinformed, as you hear. Like many autocrats, he is insulated from information, which is probably true to an extent. And he's overconfident. He underestimated the Ukrainians and on and on and on. All of these are sort of mistakes. And they're systematic mistakes that leaders and even military bureaucracies can make. And so that's a whole bucket. And of course, we hear 400 of those. The thing that makes me we're, is neither one of these is particularly strategic. And so the other three are really strategic sources of war. They're reasons that someone might optimally, without being irrational, without having these ethereal and tangible incentives, go to war. We tend to leap very quickly to these psychological ones. And they're probably true to an extent. I think we grossly overstate. We have a tendency to grossly overstate how true they are. And that's been true for so many wars, the US invasion of Iraq, World War I, and so on.
1: You can continue to use the Ukraine example or feel free to venture out, but One of the main messages of the book is that so long as war is costly, there's always a political deal that both sides kind of prefer. So do you think the fact that modern war with drones and advanced technology, cyber warfare has gotten a lot more targeted, a lot less deadly, I guess you could say in a way to actual humans, but still hugely costly? Do you think this shift in the costs from sheer human death toll to just really large economic death toll, but still costly. How do you think this shifts the calculus of war?
2: That's a good point. I mean, the less costly war is maybe the more possible it is for one of these five factors, including the psychological ones to overcome those costs. And so I think the general trend has been for war to become more destructive because at the same time, we have drones, we have things like cluster bombs, and we have unparalleled abilities to mine and not to say nothing of nuclear warfare. So- It is true that the ability to have precision strikes might mean that leaders are more willing to use them if they think it can avoid escalation. And so a lot of those incidents I wouldn't necessarily qualify as war. I'd qualify them as, because they're not prolonged, it's not a prolonged mode of violence. It's a way to sort of basically punish an enemy in some other way, but it it, it could be. So I, I would say it might enable rivals to have a bunch of punitive actions against one another that don't escalate. But when war does break out, I think the destructiveness of our weapons means more and more tends to just be a doozy.
1: So another, I guess, big name writer on violence is Steven Pinker, fellow Canadian of both of ours. And while Better Angels of Our Nature is a massive book, the main tagline is that violence and war have declined significantly in recent decades and centuries. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on a sort of paradox that declining war some say could potentially bring. And I'm thinking of Peter Churchin's work and Charles Tilley and others that sure, war with groups is horrible and costly and bad, but these authors contend that war had some benefits for collective action and cohesion within a group. And so I guess is what I'm asking is, yes, a more peaceful world with less war is great and much better, but do you see a potential byproduct of this more peaceful world is a declining ability to engage in collective action and cooperation with our in-group members? Does this help explain Maybe the decline of social capital that people like Putnam and others, for example, write about?
2: I personally don't think so. It's true that war can create some degree of social capital, and it also destroys an enormous amount as well. I think the idea that war is productive for political development is true for some periods of time in history, early modern Europe, Charles Tilly. It's not clear it applies to most other places and periods of history, so there might have been a very peculiar dynamic And quite frankly, most of, I think, the benefits of this are actually coming from intense competition. So there's a lot of advancement and cohesion and things that we engage in, and state development and all these other things from what historians call defensive modernization. So you don't actually have to go to war to get a lot of the benefits. You can, in some sense, gain a lot of the social political benefits without that really costly part, merely through intense competition. And I go into lengthy detail in this towards the end of the book, where that's one of the myths I try to unpack a little bit. So I think that's, in some sense, one of the big myths in social science that leads people to be say, well, maybe we ought to have more war. Seriously, some people will do that. Like, oh, maybe we ought to let Rwanda fight it out in Eastern Congo, because that'll be good for state development in Central Africa. And I think it's, I don't think it's completely without merit, but I think it's about 80% nonsense.
1: Yeah. Is this somewhat aligned, I'm just thinking, to my African politics and Jeffrey Herbst.
2: Herbst is I mean, I have Herbst in mind and I love Herbst and he's what he I admire all of his work and that's the maybe his one thing he's argued over the years that I strongly disagree with.
1: Yeah. And that's just because of the sheer potential for war to break out if we start to talk about redrawing these international borders.
2: Yeah, and quite frankly, I think I wouldn't necessarily have a problem with if Africans wanted to redraw national borders in a specific way, I think that would be perfectly fine. In fact, I think a lot of more political integration across Africa would be one of the most promising things for development and political stability there. But I think the idea that fighting is somehow a path to development is maybe one of the more dangerous and wrong ideas in social science.
1: So you covered intangible incentives, you covered misperceptions, and these are the two ones that you think loom large over this Ukraine-Russia war. The other three unchecked interests, uncertainty and commitment problem do you want to speak to those a bit
2: so i think they loom large in our popular imagination of the conflict that's going on right now i think we ignore the strategic sources which are there to our detriment so the first one which you mentioned unchecked interests is a pretty simple logic if the leader of the group doesn't bear those costs because they're not accountable for the costs then they're not going to take them into consideration they're going to be too ready to use violence and furthermore they might even have a private incentive for fighting so that because maybe war is going to increase their share of the pie or preserve their power. And if so, they're going to take their group to war against the interests of the group. And this is strategic because this is what we call an agency problem between people and their leaders. And it occurs in democracies. So This is the George Washington example you used, right? George Washington was an unchecked leader. Yeah. George W. Bush was in some ways an unchecked leader, right? People get... They're, they're, they're voted into office in terms, they have a certain amount of executive authority. So not completely unchecked, but a little bit can be a little bit unchecked and pursue private interests. So any president of the United States, and in this case, Putin is a completely personalized autocrat and he and his inner circle call all the shots. And a lot of the decisions are made by him individually. And so that means that he doesn't have to bear these costs of the conflict. There are some risks associated of a popular revolt and he injures some costs of the sanctions and conflict not most of them. And arguably, he has a private incentive to fight. And I think for me, the thing that's not talked about is Ukraine is the one place on the planet that Russians identify with more than any other people outside the country. And in some ways, that's part of the problem. They identify with them so much that some of them want to subsume them. And they've had two color revolutions, peaceful, popular revolutions, democratic movements in 10 years. That's a tremendously dangerous example for Putin to have right there. Because these things tend to be infectious, and he knows it. And he's very fearful of this. And so exterminating that possibility is in, it's not in the interest of the Russian people. It's in his interests, in the interest of his cabal. And so that private incentive, that war bias that comes from being unchecked, is fundamental here. And we don't talk about that enough, about how the centralization of political power makes peace much, 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 much more fragile. Maybe far more so in my mind than any of these psychological or even any other strategic factors. The second strategic factor, we sort of call uncertainty. Think about our story about misperceptions, how wrong and overconfident people say Putin got it. Well, that tends to ignore the fact that these are fundamentally uncertain. In fact, the best military analysts in the United States and many other outside countries assumed that Russia would plow through Ukraine in three days, and this would just be over very, very quickly. All of these things were fundamentally uncertain, and people, including Putin, had to make guesses. And so ex-post, we say, oh, this is a mistake. But ex-ante, it's not clear it was completely the wrong decision. I think there was some misperceptions. There was some underestimation. There was some overconfidence. There were some biases. But fundamentally, these were gambles. And that's super common. And so the uncertainty of these situations lead to these gambles. And in particular, it leads to a strategic interaction because each side knows much better their abilities and their resolve and their strength than the other. They have an incentive to bluff, to pretend they're stronger than they are, to get a better deal at peace without fighting and you always know that all of us get this strategic intuition from playing poker for example like you have this incentive to falsify your strength and hope your opponent won't call by attacking and that's a dangerous game and so i think the uncertainty surrounding this situation as much or more than the misperceptions really led putin to frankly not believe any signals from the ukraine about how resolved they were so that we have to add that in and that's a crucial strategic dynamic that exists in every rivalry
1: And like you said, much more exacerbated probably in centralized regimes because they're getting a sort of narrow slice of information.
2: Yeah. And so you can already see how all four of these things are interacting because the personalized insulated regime is going to be more subject to the tangible incentives of its personalist ruler. It's going to be more subject to his or her misperceptions. And it's going to mean that it's maybe harder to resolve uncertainty. And then the last is commonly called a commitment problem. But a lot of people might think of it as the logic of preventative war. And this is the idea that, let's think about the situation here. Russia had grown very strong. Economy boomed for 15 years from 2000 to 2015, 14, 15 roughly. Putin consolidated political control. But basically, Russia has stagnated since then. And Ukraine is growing more democratic and closer to the West by the day. There's a possibility of its economic growth is probably going to be greater than that of Russia's. And there's a good chance it's going to be armed by the West in the future. All of these are expectations we have. And so from Putin's point of view, this is his peak leverage versus Ukraine and Western Europe, I think is a fair way to look at it. And so there's this window of opportunity that's closing because it's only going to get harder. Now, sometimes that growth in power of your enemy is going to be so imminent and so rapid that there's nothing they can do to convince you that it's not worth your salt to like go and invade now. In this case, I don't think it was so dominant, but I think it added to that incentive. So we have these three strategic forces, the uncheckedness of Putin and his private incentives to exterminate this threat to his regime, the sheer uncertainty, and this sort of rising, the fact that he only expects to lose leverage over time. And all of those, I think, narrow the range of options for a deal to the point where these psychological factors can matter. You always have delusional leaders. You always have these ideological objectives. You always have misperceptions. And fundamentally, they don't carry countries to war, except when I think some of the more fundamental strategic forces have really made this peace very fragile.
1: So that's good. So this is a, we got a summary of the five logics that lead to war or make peace break down. I was going to ask, because I saw that after you returned to blogging after a long last of writing the book and whatnot, which I'm very happy for, you said during the writing of Why We Fight, you were pointed to read Machiavelli. So I'm curious there, because I love Machiavelli. How does his thought play into your views on war and peace? And was it like a revelation that you hadn't expected to come from a guy like Machiavelli with his reputation?
2: I'm lucky to have a colleague here at the University of Chicago named John McCormick, who's a Machiavelli scholar. And I heard him speak and we spoke more and I read his book and I read several books. And it was like many people I thought of Machiavelli as this person who's sort of writing a handbook for an autocratic ruler like a Putin saying, here's the sort of spelling out this cold, cruel logic of saying, listen, if your enemy is rising in power, then you ought to invade them now because this is in your self-interest. So it was basically teaching a ruler how to be more self-interested. One thing I didn't appreciate is just how original this logical, dispassionate thinking towards politics was. He in some sense invented and was the first modern political scientist because up to that point, political actions were the subject of what was morally right or what God told you to do. And so the fact that he was saying, let's calculate and optimize, let's basically kind of be strategic, was a true revolution of thought. And so that's one of the first things I learned, Which so just to appreciate the cleverness. Of course, it seems quite evil and cold-hearted, but especially because he seemed to stray from the... The political scientist would have said, here's how leaders make decisions. And he was saying, here's how you should make decisions, or so it seemed. And so this is, I think, where people like Mearsheimer sometimes get into trouble. Is they sound, I don't actually know how he feels, but they sound like they're saying we should act in this realist way. Not that this is how nations act, which I think is a fair description. He's saying this is how we should do it. We should sort of disregard norms and ideals. And I don't think he actually believes that, but I think this is the funny thing with, and Machiavelli is in that sense the first realist. And he's very much bleeding in from not just the descriptive, but the prescriptive. But what I learned is that he's actually a, a Republican in the sense of being for the people in reality. And so The Prince was written for different reasons, maybe to curry favor, but partly to maybe even tongue-in-cheek. And so he really spelled out, I think, this logic of unchecked leaders and why this is perilous. And it sort of sets the stage for his personal advocacy in his later writings on what's essentially early forms of democracy. So anyways, that was a total awakening for me and I really enjoyed reading it. And to read a little little bit more about the history of that period, and then to read it with this knowledge was, I think, just went from a boring old text to something that was really rich and exciting.
1: So a completely different and more modern question here. So over the course of the COVID pandemic over the last two years, there's been a pretty big, significant spike in violence here in the U.S., I think especially so in cities. So Maybe using your framework we just went over of this bargaining pie and the five logics of war, how do you model this spike? And how do you see this spike playing out, of course, in the next year and beyond?
2: Yeah, and here we're actually now getting closer to my day job where I'm working on a lot of reduced interpersonal and small group violence, especially criminal gangs in Chicago, also abroad. And there's a lot of parallels. I mean, there's especially close parallels when we're talking about organized groups, such as gangs. And that describes a lot of those shootings in, or at least some of the shootings in America. I think it's more of an interpersonal kind of violence here. A lot of these shootings are targeted assassinations by individual rivals who may have loose group affiliations with something that's kind of like a gang. And that has a lot of similarities. So I try not to talk about some of the more, let me say what's similar and then what's different. So what's similar is that gangs, for example, do exist in a world of uncertainty vis-a-vis the strength of their rivals. And they have an incentive to bluff one another, and then they have an incentive to sometimes call that bluff. And so a great deal of, at least short gang wars, happen for that reason. They misperceive. They're also unchecked because they don't bear most of the costs of their violence. And so you get pretty far with basically an insulated street gang member or leader who faces an uncertain world and is prone to some misperceptions. And then you can get sudden Perspective power shifts that you anticipate thus commitment problems. I think that certainly happened. I think that's more rare. And then they may have intangible incentives of personal glory or something. But I think mostly you can see a lot of gang warfare as, as this mix of uncertainty and some misperceptions and this uncheckedness. The thing that happens though with these small groups, and especially once we get to more individual violence, is that there's something I don't talk about in group warfare very much, but that's super important, which is sort of individual passions and emotions. Individual passions and emotions are not great explanations for war because war is going for an extreme long time. And so that hot reactive violence in the moment might explain the first few blows, but it doesn't explain why you're still fighting on day 493. And of course, it can matter more when you have a personalized leader like Putin. But for the most part, I think individualized violence is, obviously, you know, that hot reactive anger in response to a slight is a really, really important thing. And so I think that actually is probably dominates these more strategic motives among disorganized gangs like we see in Chicago, like we see in a lot of American cities. And so I've met dealers who will talk about their strategic incentives. Like a guy who told me, listen, like the reason I have to kill so much is because people are always looking to see if they can steal my corners, steal my stuff. And I have to show them I'm strong. So I have to kill to signal. I have to have a reputation. That's code for uncertainty. That was very calculating. That was just, he says, because of the uncertainty, And because I face so many rivals, I have to establish a reputation. I do so through violence. So that's very strategic. But at the same time, some of that killing is happening because somebody looked at him the wrong way or made a move on his girlfriend. And he feels like, partly he feels like he has to respond to signal strength, but he's also really angry. And in that moment. So I think both are true. As to why violence is spiking right now, because that's, what about those five factors has changed in the last few years, such that we've seen a resurgence in gun violence. The short answer is I'm not sure. I think one persuasive answer is that people's perceived likelihood of getting caught and being held accountable for this violence has gone down a lot, partly because there's been changes in policing and maybe a pullback in some cities. So that's one explanation, which is that people just don't expect to get caught. And so they're less checked. And so they're more willing to sort of succumb to these uncertainty and misperceptions and do the costly thing. And then the second is that COVID has maybe raised the temperature. I don't find either one of these totally satisfying, to be completely frank. So I don't think we've got the answer. But those are the two things you hear. And I I frankly don't have a better explanation to offer.
1: Yeah. On the individual level, emotions and anger point you made, I think it was this morning you tweeted out that Mr. Rogers' congressional testimony from like 1969 was one of your favorite civil society government interactions. So I watched it. I watched his statement this morning getting out of bed. And I got to say, it was the calmest I have woken up and started my day in a long, long time. <laughs> He's just got this thing to calm kids down. So the question is, how does a figure or an intervention like a Mr. Rogers early in life factor into your model of effective interventions to stem violence? You know, you work with former child soldiers. You've written a lot about cognitive behavioral therapy. But is there like a Mr. Rogers of Uganda? I don't think so.
2: So it's funny, there are these people, you know, I, the reason I ended up studying CBT is I met the Mr. Rogers of Liberia and he developed this amazing program. There's a lot of interventions. There's Mr. Rogers and there's our preschool curriculum and socio-emotional learning. There's cognitive behavior therapy. There's alternative dispute resolution. One of the things all of these have in common is they teach us to how to basically control our passions better. So these hot reactive decisions that are, mistakes. They're not necessarily misperceptions. They're just succumbing to our emotions. And it's more common with very small groups and individuals. They sort of teach us to recognize those automatic and problematic thoughts. And they teach us strategies to deal with them. Counting to 10, walking away. These are very basic things you would learn in marriage counseling. You would learn in treatments for very serious aggressive violence that my son learns in elementary school and my daughter learns in elementary school. So, and many people learn on their grandmother's knee, and we learned it from Mr. Rogers. So that's super important. The other thing we tend to do automatically, and this is more closely related to what I think of as misperceptions and erroneous beliefs, is we tend to develop when we have an adversary, we tend to develop really rigid, poisonous views about them, and then we interpret all information through this poisonous lens. And this is what people in marriage counseling often need. They've got this almost this like poisonous, reactive relationship. It's very difficult to even like process information through like a neutral lens and to sort of even assume that person's acting from goodwill. And so we need to learn to recognize that bias and misperception and walk it back and reprogram ourselves. And that's also what all of these methodologies try to do, including cognitive behavior therapy. And so I think they're really effective at helping us prevent this from happening or when we do have those poisonous relationships from helping us unwind that and sort of normalizing it. So really important, but maybe not a strategy for intergroup warfare.
1: Yeah. You did write about your wife a bit in the book, who's a PhD psychologist. I think you said she's at IRC. How much did your foray into cognitive behavioral therapy and that research, how much of that was influenced by her? And maybe do you want to first sum up that research a bit and the findings around this?
2: Sure. So I've had lots of forays into different areas of psychology and Jeannie and I have written lots of papers together. Not on this. She played a really crucial role at one moment, but this was when our our research paths, you know, our lives Converged more and more and with kids, and, 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 but our research paths diverged because she mostly looks at how to sort of relieve the worst effects of conflict. And I'm more interested in understanding why we fight and how to stop that. The way it came about, one way of like answering it all together is basically to say like I was in Liberia, I'd grown ill and I had to stay in the capital where I didn't have any projects while Jeannie ran off to the rural areas to run our projects. Once I started to feel better, but I had to stay in town, I thought I'd ask somebody to show me around. And I asked this guy, Johnson Bohr, to show me around And I just wanted to understand how criminal markets and violence worked in the city. And he could go anywhere because he'd been working in an organization that basically did outreach to the most violent people. And every time we would go visit a drug corner or mobile phone fencers or whoever we were trying to sort of understand better, somebody would come up to him and give him a big hug and be across the street. And that's how they know each other. And they'd say, well, I used to be like that guy. And they'd point to the drug dealer or the pickpocket and they'd say, but then I went to Johnson's program. And after the fifth time this happened we sat down in a bar and I said, Johnson, we have to write this out. And we spent hours writing out what he did on day one, day two. I showed it to Jeannie and she looked and she said, oh, this looks like cognitive behavior therapy. It was sort of adapted into the local context and lots of things had merged together with decades of trial and error by Johnson and his crew. And it was about teaching people how to manage emotions. And it was about teaching people how to get out of these rigid poisonous points of view. It was also teaching them to be more planful and future oriented. And it was teaching them how to, require a different social identity, how to basically act like a normal person, not be an outcast. And it did all of these things by making people cognizant of their biases, but then also practicing sort of like baby steps, practice getting better. And that's the core element of cognitive behavior therapy. It's putting the biases out there on the table, but then also learning by doing. So practicing ways to sort of get better baby steps at a time. And we put it to the test, you know, it's been put to the test for a whole host of mental disorders, but never on a large scale for violence and violence reduction with the hardened street criminals. And we did that over a few years. And after a year, of, we ran a randomized control trial. After a year, we found that was an incredibly impactful way to reduce violence. Violence went down by about 50%, especially if we gave people an economic opportunity. We're about to release 10-year results. It's completely sustained. So the cognitive behavior therapy results in really sustained almost like basically half of the people who went through the program basically turned off a criminal life. And we estimate, I think that on average, the program, which cost $500, each person who went through it average effect was they did 26 fewer crimes a year. And so that's after 10 years, that's 260 fewer crimes. So that's $2 a crime. Pretty good deal.
1: This isn't really violence related, but there's been a few RCTs on this BRAC targeting the ultra poor program where you transfer assets, but with that asset, whether it's a cow or a goat or some chickens or something, also typically comes you know nominal cash transfer as well as coaching. And I think what was found is when you remove the personal coaching element, it reduces the effect just dramatically. So do you have a sense with your work on CBT and then the findings of these sort of BRAC things, I guess, why aren't more development economists really focused on this coaching aspect of the intervention that seems so important?
2: I've tested the coaching aspect myself in some of my own cash transfer work, in which I did in a post-conflict context many years ago. And I found the effects of this to be much more ambiguous and unclear. So I'm not sure that's a robust finding. We'll find out. But the real problem with coaching is, even if it has an impact, it's tremendously expensive to deliver. So a lot of times these organizations, well-meaning nonprofits, are giving somebody say 200 bucks to buy a cow or start a business or just in cash, but then delivering the coaching might cost $300 because it involves professional staff and people driving out and administration. So the cost-benefit calculus is really stacked against it. So it has to be really impactful, I think, to pass the cost-benefit test for something like poverty alleviation. And maybe it will. I'm skeptical, but it's totally plausible, especially if it can be done in a cheap way or a cheaper way than currently. The difference with something like violence reduction and CBT is that it's super targeted at people who are having tremendous negative externalities on the rest of society. So you could throw any number of resources into them and it will probably pay off if it works, which is not true for poverty alleviation, right? Because it's actually really hard for these people to make money at a microenterprise or from a cow. Like the idea, you throw another 300 $200 at them in coaching, and then that'll somehow pay off over the next 10 years in their cow's profit. It's a hard hurdle. But someone's less likely to kill a person, someone's less likely to conduct an armed robbery. That's just so harmful to society. So that's why the CBT component of this, which costs a few hundred dollars, I think sails through a cost benefit test. And it's why in Chicago, since so this model was so successful that we inspired Chicago's main response to gun violence, where we also will have results coming out very shortly. I've been evaluating this, and I was just going to say, the program costs $65,000 per year or per person. And we're seeing the treatment effects are such that the results will come out soon, but we're sailing past that cost benefit test because the thing they're doing, which is shooting is so costly, but any other kind of program, especially poverty alleviation, you never want to throw that kind of money at somebody because it'll never, never pay off.
1: Yeah. And you mentioned on the state side, Chicago side of things, is this through the crime lab that you're talking about that this work that you
2: The Chicago work is through Crime Lab and the Liberia work was with Johnson's organization, NEPA, and Innovations for Poverty Action. Okay. Do you
1: want to maybe, because you brought it up in the last question, just talk briefly about the CBT therapy that was transferred over to the Crime Lab in Chicago and has since been, or is being scaled up. What other work is the Crime Lab doing that you've been a part of and have been seeing some really good results from?
2: Well, there's a set of related labs that this is actually a part of its crime lab. Also, we have something called the Inclusive Economy Lab it used to be called the Poverty Lab for Chicago. And this is a joint venture. A lot of people internationally are familiar with Poverty Action Lab and Innovations for Poverty Action, which do the same sort of rigorous evidence building internationally. This is my sole project with Crime Lab right now. But being able to like jump in an Uber to do fieldwork and to also work in my own city is such an exciting thing, especially because most of the time I have to be on like a 20 hour flight. So it's, I love this mix and I've learned so much. And there's a lot of idea exchange. It doesn't happen from abroad to here and here to abroad that I feel like I bring this new perspective and I can also bring some ideas and be a bridge. So it's super exciting. I'm not currently doing anything else. If I could do one thing in Chicago, I would love to study peace treaties between gangs. Super understudied, underappreciated, not pursued as a policy objective in most American cities. But meanwhile, they're doing a hundred things with police, with NGOs, with housing, with all sorts of things, basically to sort of bring this kind of rigorous evidence to test out policies to see which are working and which are cost effective and sort of advance what we know about these important social goals in a troubled city like Chicago.
1: I think the crime lab was actually mentioned in the last chapter. So let's go there because the last chapter you write, you talk about some commandments of this type of work and development work more generally, and basically outline how a lot of development work is sort of analogous to Karl Popper's. Piecemeal engineers tinkering and experimenting. You know, you talk about polycentric systems of governance and these trial and error, which I think is just spot on. And the commandment that struck a chord with me was, "Thou shalt not forget that all policymaking is political." Where, who you mentioned, I think frequently is James Ferguson's great book, *Anti-Politics Machine*. So, can you tell us about that story in Lesotho?
2: Yeah. So this was a really powerful book for me. And maybe when people ask me for a book recommendation and they work in international development or just policy in general, this is one of the first one or two that I tell people to read. And he was an anthropologist. He is an anthropologist. He's Stanford now. But in the early 80s, I believe, he was an anthropologist and a grad student off to do his field work. And he went to Lesotho, which is this little country in the middle of South Africa. Students at that time would sort of pick a tribe or a village and studying intensely. And he got there and he became fascinated by this other tribe, which wore suits and held meetings and had presentations and were engaged in this project called development. And some of them were the state and some of them were international development agencies like Canada's agency and the Swedes and US and the World Bank. So he ends up writing an anthropology of these state and international NGO and UN actors, which I just think is fabulous. And the thing he points out, which I think is just broadly true for so many policymakers, is that when you're in that planner position, whether you're foreigner or not, you tend to oversimplify the problem, you tend to see it through the lens of your tools, that kind of, when I have a hammer, everything's a nail, and you tend to sort of think that you're this dispassionate sort of actor just trying to like do the best evidence-based thing and help relieve these problems, and you forget the problem's complex, you forget that you're a political actor, that you're strengthening actors in society, and when projects fail you, which many do, most do, because of these naivetes, you also forget that maybe the one thing you've done, if you accomplish nothing else, would extend the power of your bureaucracy and to coordinate and organize people's lives and to insinuate yourself into the system. So you're a political actor, not just because you're shifting the equilibrium or whatever's going on in that society, but because you're extending your power into that society. And I just think that's a general lesson of all policymaking that everyone should pay more attention to rather than thinking there, I'm just this dispassionate optimizer.
1: This specific story, though, about how these development workers didn't understand the story of the bull and how it worked in this social system.
2: Right. I mean, there's so many great stories in that book, including maybe the best deconstructional World Bank report that I've ever seen, <laughs> which doesn't sound like an interesting first chapter, but it's fabulous. But this one was i mean one of the examples he gives was these world bank and these other development consultants and the government they go to the lesotho there's an enormous amount of cattle ownership so they're cattle grazing and occasionally there's a drought and there's no market for cattle and so all of a sudden everybody's cattle are going to die so there's this huge correlated shock and they've got really very little way to protect about it and one way to protect it is to sell the cattle in an emergency so that you can get money stay liquid, and then buy cattle again when the drought's over. Like, And there's lots of other benefits of having a cattle market, being able to sell. Why not reduce transaction costs? So this was a clear market inefficiency. And they said, well, this is easy. we'll put in all of the things we need, infrastructure, and da-da-da-da, to establish this market. On one level, it makes a lot of sense. But unfortunately, they totally misread the whole sociology of the situation. The men were only buying cattle precisely because there was no market. So Lesotho's economy functions in a funny way, which is that All the men leave to go be migrant workers in South Africa, especially in the mines, and they send all their money back and they don't want their wives to spend it. And so the best strategy is to put it in a liquid asset. And so if you suddenly create a market for cattle, while there might be some good consequences, it's going to undermine the entire system of social control, which might in itself be a good thing, assuming you were even aware that that would be the effect. Anyways, so when nobody sort of wants to participate in the system and it all fails, and you sort of, in retrospect, are like, oh, all planners make this mistake. But people who are foreign, by foreign, I just don't mean from another country, because the person from the capital and the person from the ministry who's from that country is often just as foreign to that village, maybe more so and more out of touch than the foreigner, the true foreigner. Just as I'm a foreigner on the south side of Chicago when I go do my field work there. So as soon as we're out of our sphere, and we're doing policy to somebody else. This is one of these mistakes we make. And so that's the sense in which we're anti-politics machines. We all not only like overestimate our own dispassionateness and neutrality, but we tend to ignore a lot of that rich social political fabric and things that are going on in our quest for some sort of technocratic objective.
1: Let's talk about RCTs a bit. So you mentioned in the last chapter that Lent Pritchett is one of your mentors. I think you call him the Mark Twain of development, which I think is just great. <laughs> so I got to ask, what RCT would Lant Prinship be most angry at you for running and why?
2: So Lance Bark is worse than his bite, so I think he will privately acknowledge that this system of knowledge creation makes sense. And it's just, I think what he gets frustrated at, and justifiably so, is people sort of overestimating what it can deliver and underestimating other paths to knowledge. And so, among other things. A good example is something I myself regard as a mistake in retrospect. So all the work I did on cash transfers. And my initial interpretation of results, and those results where you give people cash, they tend to spend, you give the poorest people on the planet cash, they tend to spend it well, and then they have high returns to that cash. They earn a lot more money, and so potentially a magic cheap solution to poverty. And that was probably too narrow and too short-term and too atheoretical. And when we got more theoretical and when we went more long-term, we realized the effects tend to disappear, and they might even disappear quickly, because the control group catches up. The people who didn't get the cash tend to like save and accumulate and eventually get to the same place because they have high returns. The very poor generally have high returns to capital, which is great. And if you give them capital, then they surge forward. But if you don't give them capital, unless maybe in the most ultra poor circumstances, they still surge forward just at a slower pace. So that one year or five years and certainly 10 years later, a lot of the evidence is suggesting there's no sustained effect. So this kind of kickstart is tremendous what we missed is that's kind of microeconomics, maybe not 101, but 102. Unless there's something impeding these people from saving or borrowing at all over the long term, which would lead them to be trapped in poverty, we should expect them to spring forward. So maybe it was our theoretical naivete and our enthusiasm for like a magic solution meant I probably disappointed my inner Lant Pritchett and my inner James Ferguson.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I can't remember when this was, but you talked about how you were doing this RCT and the whole thing unraveled or something because the treatment and the control groups had prearranged to share the treatment ahead of time or something like that.
2: This was the Liberia with these street criminals who are very savvy, as you would think. All my gray hair is probably due to that project. <laughs> I mean, just working in Liberia in general. But one in an early pilot, when we first tested out cast transfers through a randomized control trial, they completely insured, they partially insured one another, so they met before the draw and made deals to. Basically undo the randomization, such that if they lost, the winners agreed to compensate the losers. Now, contracting is hard, and so maybe the guys only got like twenty dollars instead of fifty out of the. Sorry, the cash grant was two hundred, so it's not like the control group got a hundred dollars. I think they maybe got twenty or thirty or forty. So, on one hand, I plotted them because I'm like, "Well done, guys, you got us." And on the other hand, I was like, "Crap! Like this is really important to know, like how we help these guys and stop this violence." So we quickly figured out a way to unravel their unraveling, which was basically by offering a consolation prize. Everybody won something. So it was a lottery for 200 or $10. And that crippled this informal Liberian social insurance system that they'd created.
1: One RCT you worked on with Stefan Durkan was in Ethiopia. He's a chief economist or
2: was chief economist? He was chief economist at DFID. He's now continuing, or what's now the FCDO, the Foreign Office in UK, he has a book. Come, he'd be a fabulous guest. He has a new book coming out in the summer called Gambling with Development, which is one of the best development books I've read in years. And yeah, we worked together for a little while in Ethiopia trying to see whether sweatshops are good for poverty.
1: Yeah. The impact of industrial work, factory employment on livelihoods of workers. And I listened to your, you had a podcast on Econ Talk with Russ Roberts about the study. You came out of that study, you said appreciating more than you'd gone into it, appreciating is how these factory owners or these entrepreneurs had this constant constraint of finding managerial talent or middle managers just like administering and operating these large factories just made immeasurably more difficult without the expertise nick bloom has done some work on this that's really good so it'd be great for you to speak about this revelation a bit first but then also i think you worked in deloitte in management consulting before going into academia so then does that managerial experience make you better at running these large scale RCTs?
2: Absolutely. Cause they're just huge, complex enterprises. My first love as a research passion was industrialization in Africa, because that is the solution to poverty period. The end, all the cash transfers in the world will not get anybody past just above subsistence, I think in microenterprises. So before I started working on conflict, I was actually in Nairobi as a grad student studying firms. And then I got waylaid into studying violence and loved it and have been really passionate about it. But I was always had these ideas about industrialization. When I had a chance to run a randomized control trial of factory jobs, I leapt at it. And that brought me into contact with all these managers. I should say that's just my hypothesis. So I think it's in line. I think we need to do a lot more work. I guess the one thing I drew, the one way to wrap it together with my Deloitte career is I left Deloitte and management consulting and things because I thought I wanted to do good in the world. And I just was not that excited about helping old white rich men get older, whiter, and richer. And that was kind of my job. And it was interesting, but that wasn't motivating for me. And what I think I discovered in retrospect is that if I really wanted to like make a place like Africa more economically vibrant and create development, I should have gone there as a management consultant and as a banker or as a... I think I could have gone and done as much or maybe even more good than I could ever do in an NGO. I think that we have this flood of skilled talent going there to, from other places and human capital into the nonprofit sector, which is great. And we have relatively, much relatively less, people are not going in there trying to say like, actually, I'm going to go do mergers and acquisitions. And I'm going to try to actually just like run a bunch of companies better and more efficiently. And there are people who go do that. One of the guys I worked with in Ethiopia was an Ethiopian American who went back to do this. And He's created more development than any other person I've met in my lifetime, probably. So I admire that. So I encourage a lot of my students to consider that path. And I sort of realized that was maybe the mistake. That may not be the mistake. I think I'm doing good now, too. Maybe I'm better at this than I was as a management consultant. But I think I could have done a lot of good.
1: And then a second question on this. Chris Platman, as manager, putting on the hat of the Ethiopian factory owner. I'm assuming as your faculty director at Harris School, for one of the programs. I'm assuming you played a big role in building out the Harris School's new all-star faculty and and this now all-star program around the political economy development. It's quite literal to say you've attracted the best, most talented people in this field from around the globe to Chicago. Michael Kramer, James Robinson, yourself, others. So what managerial or administrative powers of persuasion helped you build out this really awesome, successful program in a relatively short period of time?
2: I learned a lot from a dean we had at Harris School when I arrived here, and then he became provost very quickly, and he was on this rocket ship, and now he's president of Vanderbilt, a guy named Daniel Deermeyer, who's a game theorist and a political economist, but is now running universities. And when he became dean of the Harris School, first of all, the academic institutions are generally terribly managed. Chairs of departments are under duress. like They hate that job. They're doing it because it's their turn, and every minute is often agony. That's how I would feel. And I strenuously try to avoid any such duties. And we're not very good at it. We never, no one ever trains us to be good managers. So if I bring managerial talent, it's a total accident. Daniel just had this amazing natural talent and he was very strategic. And he said, listen, we're a 200 student school and we're not one of the great policy schools. I think we wanna be one of the great policy schools. We have to be, first of all, because we're at the University of Chicago. And so he thought big, which was important. And he said, we're gonna need to be bigger. We need to grow. And of course, everybody's happier in a growing world. And we saw the revenue coming in from students. So he was thinking in all these terms, but then he did something very thoughtful. He said, I'm willing to grow in any direction that the faculty want, but you have to convince me that we can be one of the three best places in the world at that subfield. And that turned into energy and environment. And that turned into political economy and the political economy development and conflict. And it turned into crime. And now we're pushing that direction in education. But that to me was like, a really powerful strategic lesson for an academic institution, and maybe any institution, is to sort of aim for world class from the beginning and sort of carve out a niche. And so I think that's how we've been able to do this, because now there's such a density of people in these different areas that other people who are maybe at the best places in some sense, like places that are better as an overall department, who want to come here just to be part of the group. And students come and so that's not something I ever learned in management. You you know, you don't. Lear- I'm not sure you learn that many management skills as the most junior person in Deloitte Consulting. So I've learned all of those deep lessons from people like Giermeier. Talent attracts talent,
1: yeah. So you wrote a New York Times article, basically directly addressed to one of the richest men on the planet, Bill Gates, on why cash transfers are better than giving chickens. And we just spoke about cash transfers, so the jury seems to be a bit out thus far, but you've been supportive of, Organizations like Give Directly do cash transfer work. Maybe update us on the literature because you did bring it up earlier about the longer term effects being less in your five, 10 long term. And then, second, your giving. Do you give to give directly or do you have more targeted ways of giving? Seeing as you go to these places, you have a lot of relationships. How does Chris Platman give effectively?
2: I've been swimming in the violence literature so much that this thing that I did early in my career around cash transfers. Which was related to conflict because I was doing it all in post conflict scenarios or giving to some very undesirable people. I'm a little out of touch with. So I guess I would say, you know, that if you give livestock or cash. They're both good strategies. And then it's kind of about what's slightly more cost effective and what's scalable and all these. I would just say, like, I don't care, actually. I actually give a lot of money to give directly. I love working with them. I would give money to chickens as well, whatever. The thing I've been spending more time on is that I think the deepest problem on the planet is violence and political instability. I think all underdevelopment stems from political instability and the potential for violence and when it happens it's the worst thing. So anything we can do to move the needle on that is going to have a huge return. The individualized stuff like CBT. So I spend a lot of time thinking about how we can do this on a larger scale. The cash and chickens are the easy problem to solve. And there are lots of easy problems and they're not solved yet entirely so great. Let's just pour money into the deworming medicine and the malaria vaccine and we could make a list. Great. Those are simple problems to solve. We should be solving them. But guess what? There's some really hard problems. That's kind of where the book comes from. But I struggle to find, we're not there yet. And I think there needs to be more concerted effort, which means when I do give, there's a lot of international human rights, like International Rescue Committee does amazing work. It's not just, yes, my wife works there, but she went to work there because it was the best. It really is one of the best organizations. I have immense respect for... International Crisis Group, Human Rights Watch. There's a whole host of these places that I, in Sans Francaire, they're very effective in the field. They deliver a lot of good. They're the best organizations out there doing what they do. And so we give monthly. Honestly, like I don't really think in an effective altruism, dollar for dollar kind of way, those places are creating the kind of impact they could. There's a big gaping hole. Do you have a sense as to
1: what interventions those would be to fill that hole?
2: I did an RCT of alternative dispute resolution, which is basically a whole set of mechanisms to help people learn how to, and help leaders learn how to deal with disputes better and actually not succumb to some of these five courses. And it was really impactful in Liberia and villages. And I think finding ways to cost-effectively deliver and inculcate these as both social norms and a broad set of skills and practices in societies everywhere is a fabulous investment it's been done in the US court system. A lot of people learn in school. It's embedded in a lot of our school curriculums in the United States. A lot of these skills, I would embed them more if I could. I think just large scale education on how to manage competition and heated contests and disputes, just interpersonally would be maybe the greatest single investment we could make in young people. We just have to scale up the capacity to teach those skills, but it's a totally scalable technology. Similar strategies and tools get used at international mediation levels. And so, the more we're inculcating these skills and just making it a part of our instinctual toolkit and social norms, the better. So, that would be number one on my list. Actually, that's number two. Number one on my list. I just don't know how to do it, or I do, but I can't affect it individually. The number one problem is over centralization of power. Autocrats, but not just autocrats, but democratic presidents who are not constrained by law or by other institutions. There's a lot of those in middle and low-income countries where the president is still all powerful even once they're elected. But all of this, anything to move the needle on checks and balances on power is the single best investment we can make as humanity anywhere in the world. And so any organization like the Bellingcats of the world in Russia or Dynamic Journalists or like the International Republican Institute and the... What's the other one? The National Democratic Institute. Like there are a whole set of organizations that are actually really effective at sort of building the capacity of political parties. Anything that advocated and facilitated constitutional change. So every margin that we can think of, of checking and balancing power, I think will lead to better development outcomes and will lead to more political stability and less fighting. That's in some sense the book I would like to write next. And so that is what I'm on continuing on the search for, is ways to move the needle on those things.
1: So a lot of my... Reading and research is focused on political decentralization. But, like, have you written on that before? I haven't, I'm sure I would have come across a Chris Blattman political decentralization paper.
2: It's something I deeply believe, but I haven't myself run research on. It's not quite my level of analysis or hasn't been. I'm now messing around with some things and I would like to find ways to demonstrate this. It's hard. I mean, it's one thing to sort of come up with models and actually do it, and then trying to research and demonstrate provide evidence on something like that is even more difficult so in a few years maybe
1: this is the charter cities podcast and this is probably as good a moment as ever to talk about that given we're on political decentralization so you do have a few blog posts on charter cities from way back when romer first proposed the idea like 2009 obviously cc we have a different model than romer right he proposed this you could call it a foreign guarantor model where like a Poorly governed Honduras would cede this large chunk of land to a high-income country like Canada would come in and basically import some governance and investment would flow and that would kickstart growth. This is the basic logic. Obviously, there was a bunch of critiques, which we were well aware of. So our model is a bit different in that it's sort of a public-private partnership between a host country and an urban real estate developer, ideally a local real estate developer, so they're more in tune with the context. And the host country would be given a stake in the city development company, and the real estate development company, and they would get some revenue raised each and every year. And then the developers obviously incentivized to maximize land value. So they want to attract as many new businesses and residents to the city as possible. Again, this is the basic logic, but here's the question. So you blogged a while back about Romer's model and I think you made a good point. You basically just said that a trial and error process with this, it would produce dozens of successful charter seas around the world, but the error and the trial could have a heavy human cost. Do you want to just explain, extrapolate on that a bit?
2: I like the idea. I see the appeal. I can see why people want to try this. And I think I'm in favor of being tried. It goes a little bit back to, and I think the way it's been approached, whether it's Romer's model or yours, there is a trial and error element, which is the only way you. you guys are, again you're taking this huge complex problem, which is like, how do we actually develop better political institutions and governance and grow cities? And Because that's how, that prosperity and development all need good governance and it all mostly happens in cities. So it's totally sensible, but it's just huge complex problem. It's not like cast transfers or malaria vaccines. And so we have to have people working at solving the complex problems. And governments are running terrible experiments all the time in the sense that some Central American president is deciding to take his country in a more or less autocratic direction in his term, for example. And that's an experiment that in trying to create development that can often go awry. So there's trial and error happening, happening, happen in like a more transparent, accountable way with public private ships is obviously a move in a good direction. But I do worry that it's the kind of thing where inevitably some of these attempts are going to fail and maybe people can vote with their feet and move out, but that's really hard. The one thing I've learned from working in conflicts is people don't leave. We see all these refugees and displaced people from conflict, but that's amazingly, that's often the minority. An amazing number of people can't really escape or don't leave, or they'll stay in the slum even when it's stagnant. And there's a whole bunch of very attractive gravitational pull like social and other forces and just the inertia that I think keep people in bad situations. That's one of the things that makes me worry, is I don't really believe that everyone's going to vote with their feet.
1: I totally hear you. But my thing is, If we go with Romer's thing was have this thing on a Greenfield site, so people have to opt into it. So presumably, if they've moved with their feet by opting in to the thing in the first place, they would logically be able to move with their feet in reverse if things seem to go the other way, right?
2: One would hope. I mean, that's an empirical question. And I'm just saying that my experience has now given me pause. I don't know that we know, but it's not a reason not to try, but it's more like ways to be. Listen, there's going to be unintended consequences, and there are going to be ones that fail. And I think we just want to think through more carefully and then decide, is it possible, or at least have people go in with open minds. One of the things I talk about at the end of the book, and that's partly James Ferguson, but partly some of the other people I talk about, all those is sort of social science of public policy. The lesson over and over and over again is the fact that there are these simple and these complex problems, but we tend to fail to distinguish, especially when the solution to the complex problem has this powerful allure. This purity and the Charter City is a really good example of that. You have to work really hard not to think that this is a magic solution to a simple problem. And even if you do, as the leader of the Charter City Institute, and even if everyone running it, a lot of the supporters are not thinking of it in that way and just recognizing like how difficult it is and how many ways it can fail. And so that was also my initial reaction, is it's one of these things where we can make the classic mistake of thinking complex problem is a simple one, and that's why we fail. And that's James Ferguson, that's Jim Scott. I actually ended up teaching a whole class on these lessons. It's been one of those rewarding classes I've ever taught, and, and that's just something that we find happening all over the world all the time.
1: Yeah, and you're right. There are some, I think, people in this space and other spaces across international development that are a little pie-eyed and utopian in their sensibilities part of this space wanted to do these seasteads in the ocean and stuff like this and so there are certain schemes that strike me as a little far-fetched one of the things that i've liked that we've done in the last year is open a local office and begin to establish local relationships with ministries and permanent secretaries and bureaucrats on the ground as well as the private sector and hire a team of Zambians that knows the context and can tell us things that we would never figure out. And so I totally agree. And I think that's part and parcel to this process.
2: The other thing that I can sort of imagine, I've not thought it through deeply. This morning, for example, I blogged about the tow truck mafia in Toronto. And there's a really fascinating story just about how this, in some sense, a set of incentives in the absence of like a really, there's basically a lot of money to be made. And it's poorly governed. And there's some returns to intimidation and coordination and collusion that generate criminal incentives. And then, as soon as there's money to be made and criminal groups doing it, there's an incentive for someone to govern that. The state can't. The thing is, what I might worry about with new experiments and governance and charter cities is like, at what point does a criminal actor get, or a coercive actor, have an incentive to be born? Because, you know, we're talking about Toronto just the yeah, nicest yeah. place
1: yeah. i
2: don't know where you're are you from where are you from
1: i'm from outside vancouver
2: okay and i'm from outside ottawa but even though we were supposed to hate toronto and think it's like this terrible violence it's actually like a it is but city. that's
1: okay yeah it's <laughs> <laughs> no you're right it's fantastic <laughs>
2: and it works as a city the famously jane jacobs moved from new york to toronto because she wanted to live in a city that works and yet here you have in this true sort of urban utopian some level This dark underbelly, and so I do think, like in these weakly institutionalized countries, when there's experiments in governance, there's somebody more ruthless with a higher-powered incentive to basically co-opt the system and use coercion to like do what they want. That happens all the time. Happens in lots sorts of political experiments. Some people think of this. This is the birth of, I don't know, Putin's rise to power. Masha Gessen has this great book where makes this argument that, among other things, like. The former KGB's control of St. Petersburg, almost like an organized criminal fashion, sort of presaged their rise. And these kinds of things happen all the time. And I would be on the lookout for that.
1: The thing that I usually come back to, like the final point that makes me do the work I do, is what people don't know is there are a lot of new city developments being built, constructed, under planning right now. And I think there's more than 200 under construction right now, and there's been thousands more, most of them in Asia, but elsewhere as well, including sub-Saharan Africa. And so right now these things are being built in the shadows and
2: billions are being allocated to them at
1: the moment. And a lot
2: of those are gonna be criminally captured too, because there's a lot of money to be made in construction and it's a natural, so I, yeah, that's a good point.
1: Yeah, so to me, this is the reason why researchers should be much more interested in this space because it's happening anyway. So let's try and make these projects that are being constructed, regardless of what we do, the best versions of themselves.
2: No, I'm in huge favor. I think it's a great place. My criticisms were always not so much criticisms as saying like, because I think as soon as you're going to like, take a positive action, in some sense, I think your moral responsibility for what happens next rises, especially if you're an outsider to that society and and the political accountability isn't clear again, it goes back to my point of like, I just care about political accountability to the laterally upwards and downwards in terms of say democracy. And I think the fundamental problem of all this planning and all of this development, all of these things, whether it's the mayor or the president or the charter city institute or something is that I worry that they're not experimenting enough and they're not being held accountable for their decisions. For me, it's always been more of a, okay, well pay attention to this thing over here and pay attention to this thing over here, because When you're the top-down organization and you're not downwardly accountable, then you have to be held laterally accountable. And then you guys have to police me in turn and you have to police everybody else. That lateral accountability among states and among development organizations and among intellectual institutes, I think, is like building downward accountability. At least you get better outcomes.
1: Well, if the next area you're going into, Chris, is looking into different ways for political decentralization, there could be a conversation here. So. You mentioned Jane Jacobs, so Queen of Cities, moving to...
2: She was the person who sort of inspired me to be interested in intellectual pursuits. And it's one of those first books, you know, I read in college that really sort of opened my mind. And so she figures large in my intellectual birth. But that's what I was going to ask. So reading the last chapter, it's very
1: clear how she fits into that frame of thinking as a piecemeal engineer. But like what specifically, the things she spoke about, what's kind of struck you and struck a chord and got you on the path of this more academic research oriented life?
2: Well, the book that inspired me was More Cities and the Wealth of Nations than a lot of people have read. Most people know her work on American cities. And in some ways, Cities and the Wealth of Nations is Jane Jacobs at her least, Jane Jacobs, because it's this big sweeping argument an oversimplification in some sense of history and development that I think in retrospect is I learned a lot from and it's still true, but it's maybe also not true. And so it was like intellectually inspiring to me, but I don't think that's her intellectual legacy or the thing she was most correct about. I think the thing she was most correct about is that sort of life and death of Great American Cities insight and the emphasis on the importance of this local variety and the perils of top down planning the virtues of bottom-up percolation and innovation and diversity and autonomy to solve a complex problem. So lots and lots of local decentralized trial and error and autonomy as a way to sort of approach complex problems like prosperity and safety in a city. And that resonates, I think, a lot with all of these other international development thinkers and political thinkers that I admire. And so anyways, that's what I think how she fits into this sort of piecemeal engineering kind of approach to... In this case, reducing violence.
1: Last actual question. What question didn't I ask you that you think I should have?
2: So we haven't actually talked about like when you write a book, this is what I was doing for like the last five years and actually not doing for the last year. And then we were talking about my research from even before that. I think what am I doing now is always the fun thing to talk about. So if you'd asked that question every five years or so, I decided I, I'm going to try and work in a new place. Because I still work in Uganda, I still work in Liberia, I still keep working in Colombia, but I'll learn a lot by sort of devoting myself to a new place for five years. And I'm dipping my toe into Mexico because I think the violence and the organized crime there is understudied and fascinating and important. This is a very deep problem that could have really bad externalities for everybody else in the whole region, including the United States really deep national security problems, problems about national identity, like some of our deepest and hardest political debates in the United States come from having things that are sometimes close to a failed state. I think that's an exaggeration for Mexico, it's not exaggeration for a lot of Central America, right on the border. And it's funny, we're not, violence and conflict scholars and crime scholars are there, but not in maybe the numbers they ought to be. And so that might be my focus for the next five years.
1: Yeah. We have a researcher here at CCI who is very strident in the fact that he believes that Mexican U.S. border and the Mexican drug issues are going to be the top U.S. national security threat in the next five to 10 years.
2: Absolutely. And it's a source of gun problems. There's immigration problems, which screws the whole political equilibrium in the U.S. It's a problem with their avocados, like which are run by organized criminals as well. And If you love avocados. Hipsters everywhere will be. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) If we really wanted to build support, we needed to advertise the avocado problem this creates. So yeah, it just touches so many facets of our lives. And the nice thing is you go to Liberia and there's a lot of really dynamic policymakers. but the academic and sort of the research spheres, it's just been gutted. And so there's not a lot of local capacity or capability or time or enough people. That's not true in Mexico. Nonetheless, I think there's still just not enough shoulders behind the boulder pushing. And so that's kind of what I'm excited about. But we'll see.
1: That's awesome. I just wanted to close here by at the end of the book, you wrote that one reason you wrote the book was for people like your younger self. You said someone with a vague sense, they'd like to know more and do more and to give them a mix of ideas and inspiration. And it's rare that people get to meet some of their role models in person. But now I have you here. I wanted to tell you that your blog actually served as that for me, so provided this source of inspiration and interesting ideas about slowly building a better world. So I want to just say thank you very much for that and say that in person to you.
2: Thank you. Oh, wow. I mean, that's why I blogged in many ways and why so much of it is about advice, because I maybe like you, I didn't have that kind of advice in my circle or my university. And so anyways, it's always nice to feel like that paid off. Even if it makes me feel old, especially when people who are tenured come up to me and are like, "Oh, when I was a graduate student, this was so helpful." Like, oh God.
1: <laughs> no. My main message then is like, please don't stop blogging again. Is like that's the main thing.
2: Yeah, we'll see. I, I enjoy it. It's hard to sort of try to say something most days for a long period of time. Eventually, you get stale. But yeah, I might pause again, but only because I'll be maybe writing another book. We'll see.
1: Yeah. Great. Well, that's it for the podcast. So Chris Blattman, thanks for
2: coming on. No, thanks for having me. This was fun.
0: Thank you for listening to the Charter Cities Podcast. For more information about this episode and our guest, to subscribe to the show or to connect with the Charter Cities Institute, please visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter, and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. I'm your host, Mark Letter, and thank you for listening to the Charter Cities Podcast.